You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from Peter Donnelly, CEO of Genomics PLC and Professor of Statistical Science at the Wellcome Center for Human Genetics at the University of Oxford. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on theory and practice. So Anthony, I got a chance to sit down with Peter Donnelly, CEO of Genomics PLC and Professor of Statistical Science at the Wellcome Center for Human Genetics at the University of Oxford. And I should say, we got to have this conversation in the spring of 2019, shortly before he was knighted. That sounds awesome. I'm dying to hear about a conversation with a knight. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So let's take a listen. The first question we asked Peter was how he became interested in science. I was lucky enough growing up to have great teachers at school who got me excited actually about many of the subjects I was doing at high school and then I went to university and I did relatively broad science degree but specialised in mathematics. I was lucky to get a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, did a doctorate here in mathematics and then worked as an academic for many years in mathematics and statistics, so doing research in mathematical modelling of real world phenomena that involve randomness. And then over time, I got uh, interested in applying those ideas in genetics and then got more and more interested in the science. And so kind of migrated across into genetics, where I initially led a number of the large national and international genetic studies. And in fact, now my academic group has a wet lab component. We do experiments and we, and we try and learn about biology, both through the analytical side and through the experiments. Oh, it's interesting. How long ago did you start the wet lab component of your research? Uh, seven or eight years ago directly in my lab. And then for the previous six or seven years, I've been involved in, in some cases, running very large human genetics studies, which involves getting experimental genetic data on individuals measuring genotypes or sequencing and so on. So I'd been, I'd been part of big experimental projects before and then started experimental work specifically in my lab and, and with collaborators in Oxford. What was that inflection point that made you want to kind of bring some of that wet lab work inside of your lab as opposed to do it through collaboration? I think a driver for me has been that I've kind of got more and more interested in the scientific questions and keener on finding ways of answering those. For a long time, my toolkit was the ability to bring to bear sophisticated analytical tools, statistical tools, to analyze data sets to try and answer interesting questions. But then it was natural when the focus was the questions to also be able to have as it were, one's part of the armory to tackle the questions, the ability to do, to do experiments directly. And were there any particular questions that moved you to take the work in-house? So I've had a number of kind of broad interests. Um, most of my focus is on understanding genetic variation and the relationship between the genetic variants we carry in human diseases. And, and most of the work has been about using those approaches to try and understand the diseases better. That's my major focus now. My academic uh, research lab is looking at a slightly different and more fundamental question, which is meiosis and recombination. Most of our cells have two copies of our genome. We inherit one from our mother, one from our father. When we pass our genetic information on to our kids, we do that through cells, sperm for men, eggs for women that only have one copy of our genome. And that very specialized cell division that takes cells with two copies of the genome and produces uh, sperm or eggs that involves this process called meiosis, and it has various challenges that it needs to overcome that most of the rest of what our cells do don't need to worry about. 
that process has, has long been an interest. Uh, and over about the last seven or eight years, we've been involved experimentally as well. What were the kind of unanswered questions at the time when you moved into that field that you're tackling, that you were tackling or, or, or that you currently are? So there's a kind of high level questions. As we were saying, most of our cells have two copies of our genomes. So we've got two copies of chromosome five, for example. For almost everything those chromosomes do, they're blissfully unaware of the fact that there's another copy of chromosome five sitting within the same cell. When meiosis happens, the cell has to make sure that it divides those two copies of chromosome five up so that one ends up in one of the sperm or eggs that are being produced and one ends in the other one. So at that point, what happens, and it's a, part, a crucial part of meiosis, is those two copies of chromosome 5 find each other inside the cell nucleus, and they then exchange DNA. There's a physical connection between them, and that physical connection is a key part of making sure that segregation, so the, the division to end up with, with one in each of the sperm or eggs, uh, happens appropriately. That's the model, and it's the way we teach that part of biology. But then when you start thinking about it, uh, chromosomes are very, very long molecules. They're very tightly packed up. They're jumbled and bumping around in a very crowded cell nucleus. And when you start thinking about the question, how does one copy of chromosome 5, so that's you know literally hundreds of millions of letters of DNA, how does one of those recognize and locate the other copy of chromosome 5? They don't have little flags on them saying, you know, pick me, I'm chromosome 5. The more we started thinking about that problem, the more intrigued we became. A key part of what the cell does is actually to cut the DNA. Many parts of our cellular processes try and avoid damage to DNA, and we've got lots of repair mechanisms when it happens. A key part of meiosis is that the cell makes breaks in the DNA, and then the DNA is double-stranded. One of those double strands is kind of eaten away, so there's a single strand of DNA, and that's used to probe other bits of DNA to find the bit which matches, so to find the matching chromosome and which part of it. And we had done work using analytical approaches to understand where those breaks happen. We had, in parallel with some other groups, we'd identified the key protein involved, a protein that's called PRDM9, that localizes those double strand breaks, at least in humans and mice and many other mammals. And so part of the interest was understanding that better. Another part of the story has to do with speciation. So two sets of organisms are said to be different species if either they can't interbreed or when they interbreed, the offspring aren't fertile. And since Darwin's seminal work on, on the origin of species, biologists have been trying to understand what are the genes which are responsible for this incompatibility or the, the sterility between organisms that are starting to speciate. This is like horses and donkeys can mate, but Exactly, and that's why that's the sense in which we call horses and donkeys separate species. Their offspring are not fertile. And so that that notion of what makes interspeciation not possible—that's unknown currently, or that's a thing that you're working on. Yeah. So, in I mean, there are various instances of that, and so there's been a lot of interest in trying to understand what are the biological factors, and in particular, are there genetic factors which are helping lock in that sterility? So across all the organisms that are around, there are a smallish number of examples where we know some of the genetic factors. In mammals, in all of mammals, uh, there's only one example of a gene which has been shown to play an important role in that speciation process. And it happens to be the same gene as the one we had discovered, which is responsible for localizing these breaks that end up in the recombination events, the events where the chromosomes join and then exchange material. So here was a protein that was incredibly important in, in recombination and also somehow or other important in speciation. And there was a massive puzzle to work out how that all worked. 
So the protein that's responsible for localizing these double-strand breaks is somehow involved. It's related or linked to the inability of two species to interbreed, but we don't exactly know how it prevents interbreeding. We didn't know how, and that was a mystery that we became very interested in. And that was the specific thing which started our experimental work, in this case with colleagues in Oxford. That gene is known to cause infertility in crosses between two particular strains of mice. This gene, which localizes where recombination events happen, it has what's called a zinc finger domain. So it's a part of the protein which recognizes and binds to a particular string of letters in our DNA. And that's the mechanism we now know by which it picks particular places for these breaks to happen and then for recombination to occur. Got it. And that zinc finger domain is the same thing that is used in talons or other DNA altering technologies as well? Is that the same, same concept? Yes, there are, there are now a number of DNA altering technologies. The widest spread and the most recently discovered and most powerful one is something called CRISPR, which works on a different basis. But there are not many proteins which have to act at either specific bits of DNA or sometimes specific bits of, of RNA, and they use these ink fingers. So you can think of those as particular arrangements of uh, amino acids within the protein, which kind of, they're good at recognizing specific DNA sequences. So you've identified a particular protein, and you know it's involved in localizing double-stranded breaks that are important in meiosis and that it's also involved in infertility. But how exactly is it preventing these two species of laboratory mice that you, you might have engineered from interbreeding? Yeah, so that's what we wanted to try and sort out. So the experiment we undertook, I think, uh, in retrospect, rather naively, what we did was that this zinc finger array varies a lot between species, and it actually varies quite a bit within species. And when it changes, the places to which the protein binds and hence where these double-strand breaks happen uh, change. So we performed the experiment of taking the gene that was in one of the mouse species and replacing the zinc finger array by the zinc, one of the zinc finger arrays that's common in human populations. So that had the effect that it meant that the protein bound to completely different places in the DNA, so the double-strand breaks happened at different places. The first thing that happened was that changing this in the mouse had no effect on the fertility of, of the mouse into which we put that change. So in most cases, if you take a gene from humans and you put it into a mouse, there'll be many things that are similar, but probably it won't work as it were out of the box. That in itself was interesting. But what was really interesting is instead of the mice from the two different species so that when they interbreed, uh, the offspring are infertile, we replaced one of them by mice, an identical mouse, except that it had this human zinc finger array in it. And the offspring of those mice were perfectly fertile. When we thought about it, it was a really odd thing. We'd taken a gene that was in mice. We'd replaced it by a gene from humans, which was like separated by 150 million years of evolution. And suddenly whatever problems it was causing were fixed. Normally, if you put something which is evolutionarily very distant in, it makes things worse, not better. You can't just hot swap these parts and expect them to work out of the box. I exactly. And not only did they work out of the box, but furthermore, this really distant thing solved the problem that the one that's actually in the mice caused. That's really interesting. So what's the next thing to figure out after that? So you identified this protein, which seems to be mediating ability to interbreed in these specific cases. And then, I guess, where are you taking this? Yeah, so the, um, we were then able to do experiments to try and dig down and work out exactly what was going on at the molecular level that meant that the human version of the protein solved the infertility problem. And that's a slightly complicated technical explanation. It's really nice in its way, but probably not worth going into all of the details. 
But by doing this experiment of replacing it with the human variant of the gene and then by measuring in different, fairly sophisticated molecular ways what was happening, we were able to untangle exactly what the mechanism was. There are standard models of the way the genes may contribute to this infertility between species. It was nothing to do with any of those. And in fact, uh, we're able to show that probably what this gene does is it causes short-term infertility, where short-term is in evolutionary terms, so you know, for large numbers of years. Eventually, the gene will change and the problem will go away. But in the meantime, there'll probably be other factors which arise, which, which lock in the infertility between the species. So we were able, by doing this kind of slightly odd experiment of taking a gene from humans and putting it into the mouse, curing the problem in the mice, and then measuring carefully what was happening, we were able to untangle the mechanism, which is pretty interesting. So is this the same mechanism you might expect to be at work when two populations become geographically separated, kind of in in Darwin's experiments, and they become unable to interbreed kind of on short evolutionary timescales? And then are you suggesting that if they stay separated for long enough that other mechanisms prevent them from interbreeding, they kind of pile on top of the original one? Yeah, so we, we know this is an issue specifically for these mice, mouse species. There are reasons to think it could have an effect much more broadly across uh, other sorts of mammals, for example, and other species. Not, not all species have this gene PRDM9, but the ones that do, it could act more broadly. We don't know that yet. We don't know of another example in mice where we've been able to fix an infertility problem by, by doing the same kind of change. So how widespread this mechanism is, we don't know. But as I said originally, we know very few examples at all of how these mechanisms actually work at a kind of detailed molecular basis. It's a new one, and it's very different from any of the models, which has been interesting. It's another kind of tool in the genetic toolbox for for speciation. That's really interesting. Mind if I switch gears a little bit? I kind of want to understand how you went from A to B, uh, where B is the stuff that we were just talking about, all this interesting work in in meiosis, and A being, you know, you started studying mathematics, and you jumped around quite a bit, um, or at least it seems so kind of on paper. And I was wondering if you could walk me through your career trajectory that ended you up uh, where you are now. It's interesting. It's one of those things where when you you look back on the trajectory your career's taken, I would never have expected it at the time. I started off being interested in mathematics. I loved both the beauty of mathematics and, in my case, uh, all of my mathematical work was studying systems that involved randomness and, and some of the really interesting things you can have in that context. Relatively early on, I got interested in models involving randomness for the way in which populations evolved. It's an area that's called population genetics. And those mathematical models turn out to be both very interesting and, in a certain sense, elegant uh, from a mathematical point of view, but also interesting in terms of predictions they make about population evolution. So I worked on those for a while, and then I became interested not so much in the evolutionary models themselves, but as, as the field started to change and we started to get data on genetic variation, how you could use that data to learn a bit about the models. And then... For most of my career, I'd been in maths or statistics departments. Uh, I moved to a position at the University of Chicago where I had a joint appointment between their statistics department and the Department of Ecology and Evolution. And that brought me in a kind of direct interaction with scientists who were really interested in the science rather than the mathsy part. And it gave me a chance to learn a lot of the science and to learn a lot of the biology and to, to understand what the really interesting questions were. And I found myself getting more interested in the questions and less interested in the kind of mathsy or statsy challenges about how to solve them. So over time, and that they were the early years of this century, as it started to be possible to generate genetic data on larger and larger scales, I got involved in some of the large cutting-edge projects, and then you're as driven by the science 
as you are about how to analyze the data and found myself more and more interested in the scientific questions. You've said you think of yourself now more as a human geneticist than a statistician. Is it your time at the University of Chicago where that transition happened for you? That was an important part of the journey in helping me learn more of the science and understand which scientific questions were interesting and why they were interesting. And then over time, I've become interested and involved in particular sorts of projects and learned more and got more engaged. And I've learned, uh, it's taken me a while to realize this, but looking back on my career, I've sort of shifted my focus a bit every five or six or seven or eight years, not consciously, but I would get interested in questions which are slightly to one side of where I was, and then I'd follow that path and so on. So I think of my career as having had a very mathsy phase, and then a statistical phase, and then a kind of analytical phase in genetics, and then very human disease focused. And now I've got the two pieces, one in human diseases and the other bit in meiosis. I just love learning new areas. I love understanding new problems and, and trying to puzzle them out and solve them. So it seems like a constant, at least through a couple of the last phases, is really large data sets that have just become available that you can poke at and and look at and and ask new questions in. And you were kind of there at the beginning of genetics producing really incredible amounts of data. Could you walk me through what that was like? It was really exciting. It was in the period just after the Human Genome Project. Uh, So the Human Genome Project had read one version of our genomes. I mean, there was a huge sense of excitement about that. The natural thing to do after that was to try and understand the differences in genetic variants. Our genome is three billion letters of DNA. We get one copy from our mother, one from our father. If you compare the DNA from one person with the DNA from someone else, those two DNA sequences will agree at about 999 places out of 1,000. Incidentally, if you compare one person's DNA with a chimpanzee's DNA, they agree at 99 places out of 100. So even between us and our closest primate relative, there's there's huge DNA sequence similarity. It was kind of obvious that many of those DNA sequence differences must be playing a role in some of the inherited differences we see between people. And so a natural next step after the Human Genome Project, if you can, you can think of the Genome Project as studying the consequence of the DNA that we all share in a certain sense, then a natural next step was to understand more about the variants, the genetic variants, and and which of those were responsible for or contributed to, uh, had an effect on various human traits, and in particular human disease traits. So right after the first human genome was sequenced, the field had kind of climbed a mountain. And then you mentioned that the next immediate question is, well, what makes us different and which of those differences contribute to disease, desirable or undesirable traits? So that seems like a huge leap in terms of the data that must be collected and the kinds of methods that have to be used to examine that data. Was it clear how big of a jump that was going to be, how daunting that was going to be, and kind of what the immediate next steps were? It was reasonably clear what the next steps should be. Uh, The first of those was If you want to look at the consequences of genetic differences between people, you need to identify some of those genetic differences so that you can measure them. And then you need to understand those patterns in different uh, groups, groups with different ancestral histories. And so immediately after the Human Genome Project, there were projects to try and, uh, you know, almost collect a catalogue of genetic variants, which you could then measure, and to develop experimental methods to measure them relatively cheaply in people. The natural next step was to just understand the patterns of variation in different human population groups. And that led to a very large international project I was fortunate to be involved in called the HapMap Project. 
which was about characterizing those patterns of genetic variation in different parts of the world. And we studied one set of samples from a European population, one from an African population, and another set from Asia, from individuals with Chinese and Japanese ancestry. Just understanding how those genetic variants and the patterns we have of them, which bits of those are similar between populations and which bits differ, was a key part that sat between the Human Genome Project, the first version of a genome, and putting the infrastructure in place, understanding patterns of variation in human populations that then allowed us to go on to do very large disease studies. Before HapMap, did folks know that there was systematic genetic variation as a function of geography? Or is that the thing that HapMap told us? HapMap helped us categorize what those patterns looked like, but geneticists have been aware since the earliest days of genetics that patterns of genetic variation differed in different parts of the world. So in the early days of studying blood groups, for example, people realized that the different blood groups that we could measure in those days by chemical and biochemical techniques in the blood rather than by actually measuring the DNA sequence, blood groups had different frequencies in different parts of the world. That was one example of genetics. In the 1960s and 1970s, there was a particular part of our genome important for the immune system, so the um, what's called the MHC, the Major Histocompatibility Complex, we learned that there was a lot of diversity in those immune-related genes for reasons that we understand. And those patterns of diversity, again, differed around the world. So we in the field had been aware for a long time that there were different patterns of genetic variation in different parts of the world. We knew that there were differences, but what HapMap did was to characterize those patterns of differences genome-wide, not just for, for one system around blood groups or another part of the genome around the immune system, but across all of our genome, across different populations. You know, what we had before, maybe just to restate it, was kind of very targeted, opportunistic ways of measuring genetic variation as a function of geography. But now you have this unbiased genome-wide way of doing that. What else kind of came out of that study as a result of not necessarily having a specific genetic target to look at? The other thing that came out of that study, and this is what powered my interest in uh, recombination, it turns out that if you look at genetic variants which are near each other in the genome, variants which are near each other are often highly correlated. So if you have an A at one position on a chromosome and a T at some nearby variable position on the chromosome, then you might often have a G at the next nearby position on the chromosome. And in some sense, the point of the HapMap project was to learn about those patterns. Because if you know those patterns, if you know that if you have an A here and a T there, you tend to have a G there, you don't have to measure all, all of those variants. You can measure some of them and infer what the others would be. The fact that we have those correlations in humans over often over tens or hundreds of thousands of, of bases of letters in our DNA, it turns out to be that's because of aspects of this process of recombination shuffles up those correlations. Now, the shuffling doesn't happen throughout our genome. It happens at certain specific positions. We now know they're the positions where this protein PRDM9 binds. It wasn't known at the time. We just knew that somehow or other there was something that caused a pattern of correlation over an interval in our genome, and then there was a kind of break point. And then as you move beyond that, there would be a different pattern in the next chunk. So having realized that, we developed statistical methods to kind of infer the places where those breaks in correlation happened, and, and that identified these things called recombination hotspots. We learned some fundamental biology, and in, in my own case, that's what got me interested in re initially in recombination and meiosis. So you've gone from the macro, like statistical or large data scale discovery, all the way down to the micro, looking at the specific protein that's responsible or involved in the phenomena that you discovered statistically. Yeah, so first of all, we use these statistical techniques to identify the places in the human genome where these breaks in correlations, so-called recombination hotspots, occurred. 
because there were at that stage moderately large amounts of data on genetic variation in human populations, we could use those to identify about 30,000 of these positions in the human genome at a time when about 20 of them had been identified through experimental techniques. So it was a really nice example of, of statistical power identifying fundamental biology. And then because we had 30,000 of them, my colleague Simon Myers led on this, we were able to actually find the string of letters in the DNA that was responsible, that kind of marked the positions where this happened. So again, that was statistical work. Uh, that was a key part in us identifying what the protein was, this protein PRDM9. A number of other groups identified it at the same, same time through studies in mice. We were able to go from the statistical patterns of variation to kind of work backwards to work out the biological forces that were causing that, to identify the places where these events happened, to identify the sequence of letters. So it was in humans for the first time in any species that we knew the sequence of letters in DNA that were associated with these recombination events, and then to identify the protein involved. So it's pretty clear that as the available data grew, the number of questions that you could ask or the specificity of the questions you could ask as well also increased. I'd love to hear your thoughts just in general on the kind of increasing volume of data, you know, in biology, but in many fields now, and how science is adapting to that on the whole. Yes, it's certainly true in, in genetics. Genetics has gone 20 or 30 years ago to being a field where you could easily, I mean, initially you could have the data in tables, you know, on a piece of paper, and then you could easily have it in spreadsheets. But our ability over the last 10 or 15 years to measure relatively easily hundreds of thousands of genetic positions across the genome. So now, for example, you can measure a million positions across someone's genome for something like 30 or $40. And in the early days of those arrays, so when we started the large human disease studies in 2004 or five, you know, it was maybe a few hundred dollars per individual to measure lots of that information. So that's just transformed our ability to collect genetic data. That's most interesting when it's linked to information about the person from whom the data comes. The large disease studies initially, for example, would take a large number of people with a disease of interest, say a heart disease, and then a large number of controls, individuals from the population, and measure them genetically and look for places where there are differences. The genetic data in itself was interesting and we learned some interesting biology from it, but it's really become powerful as we've linked the genetic data to information about people and we can try and tie those things together to understand biology better. So. One thing I'd like to get your take on is you mentioned you know, trying to link variants in people's genomes to observed phenotypes, like a person's height or, or hair color or, or something like that. This has been the purview of statistical genetics for a long time. There's a whole lot of other tools that aren't necessarily new but are coming online and are in vogue from you know, what's being broadly called machine learning. Have you seen any of the tools that from the machine learning field make their way into genetics and have an impact? What do you see as that interaction? Genetics is a huge field, and there are many, many different sorts of data. There are many different sorts of things you can measure. My major focus, and most of what we've been talking about for the last few minutes, is DNA sequence data and linking that to information about people. And uh, as you were saying, uh, that's an area where relatively straightforward statistical techniques have been extremely successful. So there, there are some human diseases and conditions caused by severe changes to particular genes. Those conditions are typically individually rare and they're usually extremely serious. Collectively there are many thousands of those but they only affect smallish numbers of individuals and we're starting to understand that better. At the other end of the scale are all of the common diseases in humans, things you can measure easily in humans or not so easily all the way through 
measurements like height and weight, uh, cholesterol level, you know, fasting glucose levels, aspects of our behavior and our personality. It's now clear that all of those, what we would call complex traits, that genetics is a part of the story that explains variation in those traits between people. It explains variation in susceptibility to all of the common diseases, diseases like heart disease or diabetes or schizophrenia or arthritis and so on. Genetics is a part of that story. And what's been interesting over the last 10 or 15 years is the massive explosion in our knowledge of genetic variants associated with those. So to, to give you a sense, in about 2005, if you said across all of the common diseases, the, the complex diseases, what do we know in terms of places in our genome that were reliably associated with changing susceptibility to the disease? There were a few examples in the immune-related part of the genome in the MHC, but very few others. And then we were able to do these large studies. We could link genetic information across the genome in, say, thousands of individuals with a disease and compare that to controls. Those studies, which are called genome-wide association studies, started to report in about 2005 and 2006, and I was lucky to lead what was probably the largest of the first generation of those studies. Even by 2007, we'd gone from knowing five examples to maybe 40 or 50 examples for common diseases. We thought that was an extraordinary change. In fact, Science Magazine listed that change. That was their scientific breakthrough of the year in 2007. So we'd gone from five to about 50, and we thought it was extraordinary because we'd been trying to solve these problems by different routes for about 20 years and got nowhere. Wow. So the explosion of available data and the techniques to analyze that were integral in that. Absolutely. It turns out the initial techniques were reasonably simple. If you were doing a study of, of heart disease, a typical study, you would measure, say, uh, half a million positions across the genome of 2,000 people with heart disease and 2,000 controls, so randomly selected individuals from the population. And then you would just look position by position across those 5,000 positions for places where the frequency of the genetic variants in the sick people, the cases, differed from that in the healthy people. To see why that's the case, you imagine, imagine that there was a position where if you have a T rather than an A, it makes you more likely to get heart disease. Then if you look in people with heart disease, the T will be a bit more common. So actually, there was lots of data, but the simple analyses, which just looked position by position, turned out to be very effective. Now, obviously, you need to be careful because you're measuring lots of things. You've got to make sure you allow for uh, randomness and chance events. And the field did pretty well in, in having well-established ways of correcting for that. We looked for very, very, very strong evidence of a difference. And we made sure people replicated it so they got independent evidence in a separate set of individuals of the same thing. But that process, as these studies got larger and larger, we went from knowing, you know, maybe five examples across all common diseases in about 2004. It grew in the second half of the 2000s. As I said, by the end of 2007, there were maybe 40 or 50 or 60 examples. There are now something like 100,000 different examples of genetic variants, places in the genome where whether you have one letter rather than another, affects, usually only by a very small amount, but affects um, something we can measure in people. Wow, so 5 to 40 was a huge jump. And now there's 100,000, yep. We now know for any of these um, complex human diseases or for almost anything we can measure in people, there will be many hundreds, probably thousands or tens of thousands of genetic variants which affect the thing you're measuring, whether it's susceptibility to a disease or your height or your cholesterol level. There are thousands of those. They all individually have small effects. We need to make large studies to be convinced they're real because you're trying to pick small differences between cases and controls, but individually their effects are small. On the other hand, every single one of those is a potential clue to the underlying disease. 
if I know that if you have a T rather than an A at this position in your genome, you're more likely to develop heart disease, the obvious thing to do next is to say, what's going on biologically that's different? So you'd like to know the mechanism that relates that change to the actual phenotype or, or physical manifestation that you see of that disease? Yep. And then if you can unpick that, the potential is to learn something new about the disease that may help you treat it. Well, that seems like the hard part. I mean, now we have this flood, 100,000 different variants associated with disease. That seems too much to sort through by hand. Do you see anything coming down the pike for how to automate that mechanistic discovery process or the discovery of mechanism associating variants to disease? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Not only is it too many to do by hand, but actually it turns out to have been really, really hard. We've got these 100,000 examples. Every single one of those is an important clue to our underlying biology. The number that we've kind of solved in the sense of working out what's the key variant, which is the gene involved, what tissue matters, what's the biological story, the number we've actually solved is in the tens or maybe 100 or so. And every one of those has involved five or 10 years of really clever and careful molecular work. So, you know, we sequenced a human genome that was climbing a mountain, then going to the moon of discovering the variants associated with disease, and we haven't yet made it out of the solar system to discover, you know, what exactly are these variants doing in disease and how to mechanistically understand and fix them. Is that kind of the horizon at this point? Yeah. And there's a tendency in many fields, including this one, to kind of overestimate how far along a journey you've got. But I think we're at a point where things will start to change. So it turns out that most of these variants that affect disease, common diseases, Genes produce proteins. Most of these variants don't actually change the protein. What they affect is the amount of protein that's produced. If you think of a gene as a machine or factory that produces a protein, they kind of dial it up or dial it down a bit. And all that process of regulating DNA is something that we haven't understood very well, that bit of biology, molecular biology. That's why it's been challenging to unpick it. But I think as we get larger and larger data sets and start to aggregate this data, that's where the really exciting opportunities come and combining that with our increased understanding of, of gene regulation of the machinery that turns genes up and down. That's the basis on which we founded a spin-out company to try and use that specifically to, to improve uh, how we do in drug discovery, which is not great currently. That's exactly what I want to ask you next is, is your role as a CEO at this new company. And, you know, sometimes ideas are best kind of born and shared with the world through papers or through academic work. And sometimes ideas are best shared as companies. I want to hear a bit about uh, your work in this company, why you thought that academia wasn't the right way to do what you're doing there. So tell me a bit about what your company's up to and uh, how you split your time. Will do. So we had been working really hard you know, through the academic world and through being involved in many of these large projects for 15 or 20 years. That field has been incredibly exciting. What I realized, along with a number of colleagues in Oxford, was actually the scale of the data at that point was small compared to where it would go to. Estimates differ, but I think in 10 and probably certainly 15 years' time, there'll be a billion people on the planet who have had their genome sequenced. A billion, I would guess. It'll cost tens of dollars in 10 or 15 years' time, and it'll be something that people can choose to do if they want to or as part of healthcare systems. It was seeing the scale of the challenge that made us realize that we needed to have a scalable way of developing the analytical tools, and that's what drove us to start a company. The main focus of our company is around currently is around drug development. So you'll probably be aware the drug development industry currently spends $200 billion a year on research and development, on trying to find new drug targets for, for human diseases. That's a huge outlay. There are very, very smart people who are tackling these problems. 
They use extensive studies in model systems, in cellular systems, and it's still the case that 90% of the time a potential new drug is tried in humans, it fails. So one of the senior executives at a drug company recently only half-jokingly said, you know, it's as if the industry specialises in failure. It's a very hard problem, but in most industries, if you're trying to make something that failed 90% of the time, you'd think maybe there should be a different way of doing this. Genetics, I think, is incredibly important and powerful here in the following way. So when, when you develop a drug, you're trying to intervene in some aspect of human biology. You might think, for example, if I develop a drug that inhibits this protein, that stops a particular protein from doing what it would normally do, you may have a hypothesis that that will improve outcomes in, say, heart disease. So at the moment, if that's what you think, uh, you have to do two very difficult and expensive things to find out whether you're right. The first one is you've got to invent and develop a molecule, a way of stopping the protein from doing what it would normally do. And then having done that, you have to test that in humans, first of all, to see if it's safe, but then to see whether it has the impact that you want to. So that's a long, expensive and involved process. And in spite of all of our efforts, 90% of the time we get it wrong. Drugs fail for very many reasons. Sometimes the molecule doesn't quite do what you wanted it to do. Sometimes it does and it's not safe. Depressingly often, drugs fail because the molecule does exactly what you wanted it to do. It just turns out that changing that bit of biology is not relevant for the disease that you're interested in. This is the same challenge that you mentioned before, which is going from variant to disease, but then there's this middle mechanism piece, which is, well, what's the actual biology that's going on there? With the added complexity, perhaps, that now you need to change it. it exactly. One of the reasons this is hard is we don't understand human biology very well. It's fundamentally complicated, but also, unlike every other area of science, we can't do experiments directly on humans. So here's how genetics can be helpful, uh, we think, and as do others. So if you have a hypothesis that inhibiting this protein will be helpful for heart disease, at the moment, you have to develop the protein and test it to know whether that's right. But another approach is to say, why don't we find individuals who happen to carry genetic variants that affect that same protein? So for example, if, if there's a variant which dials down the gene which makes the protein, the individuals who have that genetic variant, it's a bit like they've been on a weak version of your drug all their life. So if you think affecting that protein is helpful for heart disease, we can look to see whether these individuals whom nature has in effect given a weak version of your drug, do they get less heart disease? We can see in humans whether changing that bit of biology is helpful for the disease in question. You can also ask if you have a genetic variant which changes that bit of biology, does it do anything else? It may be helpful for heart disease, but if those people get more prostate cancer, it tells you in advance that if you develop that drug, it'll probably have safety consequences around increasing rates of prostate cancer. So the high level idea is nature is doing this huge clinical trial on all of us. So if we get the right data where we knew the input, we knew those genetic changes in a large number of individuals, and we could measure the outputs, that's more complicated than an ordinary clinical trial. An ordinary clinical trial changes one thing and measures outputs. But you can start to see it's clearly a big data problem. If you get the right kind of data and you can analyze it the right way, we can start to use these changes that happened through nature to learn what happens when you change bits of biology. So by using industrial scale data aggregation and data analysis techniques, you can mine and categorize and take a peek at all of nature's experiments that are ongoing. Absolutely. You get to learn about human biology in humans. Peter, thank you so much for your time today. We covered a lot of really interesting topics and it was, it was wonderful speaking with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Peter Donnelly, CEO of Genomics PLC and Professor of Statistical Science at the Wellcome Center for Human Genetics at the University of Oxford and a knight, which is pretty cool. It's so cool that you got to have that conversation. 
So Anthony, you and I both attend this meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail, where everyone in the group brings an idea, a solution, and a problem. Do you have a cool idea you want to chat about? Yeah, you know, the thing that's been really on my mind lately is atrial fibrillation. It's a very common disease that is entering a new era. So what is atrial fibrillation? So your heart has four chambers. The top two chambers are called the atria and the bottom two are called the ventricles. And atrial fibrillation is where the top two chambers kind of go into spasm or like epilepsy, if you will. That uh, of the heart. seems quite bad. <laughs> so interestingly enough, it's not as bad as you might think it is. Okay. <laughs> uh, so if you go into ventricular fibrillation, which is to say your ventricles go into spasms, then you're what's called dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So this is a distinction. So if your atria go into fibrillation, you're something other than dead, right. but I'm guessing it's still not very good. Yeah. So what it turns out is that in most people, you can live just fine with your, your atria spasming. There are some people for whom it's a bigger deal and, and they're more dependent on their atria functioning. But for most people, even older people, it's fine if their atria are in atrial fibrillation. So why do we worry about it? Well, because what happens is that when you're in atrial fibrillation, you're much higher risk of blood clots forming in your heart. I see. And then flying north to your brain. Got it. And that's because there's not even blood flow and so things can accumulate or is there yeah. another reason? That's right. The blood is not flowing in a laminar way. And, you know, there are kind of little pockets where the blood is kind of swirling around or turbulent. Okay. And that kind of causes it to clot. In particular, there's one, there's one little corner of your heart called the atrial appendage where that's especially likely to happen. So the real risk of atrial fibrillation is not actually heart problems for most people, you know, and again, with exceptions, but really the risk of stroke. And in fact, one of the things that's also true about atrial fibrillation is that many people, especially older people, for whom atrial fibrillation can be very common, like, you know, three, four, five percent, can be in atrial fibrillation and not realize it. If you're in atrial fibrillation, is this something that you're in 24-7 or is this an intermittent thing that can persist over long periods of time? So both. Okay. So there are some people who go in and out of AFib and then there are other people who are in it all the time. Got it. And, so and as usual with biology, it's complicated. Yep. Um, yep. But generally this is a bad thing to be in long term. Yes. yes. Okay. No question. And in fact, many people will start out being in and out of AFib and then over time they're in AFib more and more and more and eventually they're just... Okay. 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 So, and in fact, one of the things that is especially scary is for not a small number of people, the presenting symptom of AFib, which is to say the thing that brings you to medical attention as having AFib, is stroke. Okay, so that's too far gone. Yeah, well, yeah, so exactly. So you would like to be able to know somebody is an AFib right. before they have a stroke and show up at the hospital, you know, unable to speak or unable to move their arm right. or something like that. And what would you do if you knew somebody had AFib? Well, it turns out that you can give them a blood thinner. And then that does a lot to prevent the risk of having a stroke. And this is because it reduces the likelihood, the likelihood of cl the clotting forming. Exactly. Okay, got it. Exactly. So you have this interesting scenario where you have a very terrible outcome, which is stroke. You have a very good medication, which is a blood thinner. But the problem is, how do we find people who are in atrial fibrillation in the first place? You know, as I said, they can be in and out of it. Um, and so even if they go to the doctor on a regular basis, a doctor can miss it because they're you know, heart is beating normally when they see the doctor. And moreover, one of the things that's always been a challenge, even if people, let's say, have symptoms when they're in atrial fibrillation, like palpitations, traditionally what we've done is give people a wearable ECG that mm -hmm. they can walk around with. Mm -hmm. It's called a Holter monitor. But again, you can only wear those for at most two weeks. 
Got it. Um, and again, it's not uncommon for people to be, you know, mostly in normal uh, heart rhythm and then every so often in AFib. And you also have to have a, a reason for your doctor to actually put that thing onto you. Exactly. And then you have to catch it in those two weeks and kind of the, the likelihood of actually grabbing this kind of goes down and down and down. Okay. Exactly. Got it. So now there are three things that are starting to change. And I think all three of them are really interesting and could be a real phase transition in how we care for patients with atrial fibrillation or find it in the first place. So the first one is wearables, by which I mean, you know, Apple's iWatch or Android or, you know, any of the devices, even Fitbits. And and I'll tell you what's kind of an amazing thing is atrial fibrillation is the one arrhythmia that you can get from heart rate alone. So if I don't have an ECG, but all I do is kind of have a sense of the beating of your heart. So in fact, I can diagnose atrial fibrillation with my thumb on your wrist. Really? Okay. Yeah. And that's not because I'm such a great cardiologist. It's because, yeah, it's because it has a very distinctive pattern, which is to say it's irregular. So this, that, I mean, that's pretty special that like, yeah. is, this is a scenario where the cheapest sensors yes. get us the information that we need, which doesn't, that kind of thing doesn't come along all the time. Exactly. And, you know, whereas before we had to put an ECG on you to try and find it because there weren't kind of these cheap sensors that would monitor your heart rate 24 seven suddenly that happens all the time now. So that's one thing that's really a big deal. And obviously we need to run trials and formally prove that this is an effective way of diagnosing atrial fibrillation. But I think many cardiologists are quite optimistic about it. But there's also a a challenge, which is, all right, now you found atrial fibrillation. Among all people who have atrial fibrillation, not everyone should be put on a blood thinner. Why? Uh, So you're going to be shocked to hear that blood thinners can cause you to bleed. (laughs) I see. (laughs) Uh, Either into your gut or into your brain, which is especially devastating. Okay. So again, as is the case with many medical interventions, in the right person, giving a blood thinner can save a life. Right. But in the wrong person, it can end it. Wow. Okay. Uh, So to date, our current way of deciding who gets a blood thinner is something called CHADS. C stands for congestive heart failure, H stands for hypertension, A stands for age greater than 75, D stands for diabetes, and S stands for stroke. So if you have two or more of these things, and technically stroke counts twice as much, but if you have two or more of these, then you uh, get put on a blood thinner. If you have none of them, you don't. And if you have one, it's talk to your doctor about the risks and benefits. Got it. So it's it's a little algorithm you can run on one hand. Exactly. Yeah. So and, and in fact, that's probably why it was chosen. Is I that see. We have five fingers. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There's not a chads with two A's or anything like no, that. No. Just... That would that would be too confusing. I understand. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Not computable. Not computable. <laughs> right. right. So and I think you and I are both going to the same place here, which is in the golden age of machine learning. This is pretty embarrassing that this is our decision support tool. There's nothing that says these five variables are the only thing that's important. There's nothing that says they should be integer multiples of one another. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then moreover, where it was originally developed, you know, is a population that is much sicker and much different than the average person buying an iWatch, Mm -hmm. right? So you can imagine that deploying it in that population might lead to a lot of false positives or false negatives. So again, you know, what we really need are ML-based tools that tell us, among everyone with atrial fibrillation, who are the people for whom the risk of a stroke is bigger than the risk of bleeding. So that's a really important question. Yeah, absolutely. Could you give me a sense of how big the opportunity is? You know, the frequency of atrial fibrillation, I believe, in people who are 65 and older is somewhere between 2 and 5%. Okay, so st- still, still low, yeah. 
Well, I mean, that's a lot. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> At least, you know, when I think about, you know, how many people are over 65 years old in America, that's a lot. You know, and so, and a lot of them could have strokes. Yes. So, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> a, at least I mean, this is a, yeah. this, this crosses into not rare, but yeah, public okay. health. Okay. Because I, I have no concept of like percent is small, I guess. <laughs> Single digits yeah. are small, but uh, 5% of all people 65 or older is a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so anyway, so I, I think this is a, a very, very big area for impact. And then a final thing that's also gone on in the background is that for a long time, we only had one drug for atrial fibrillation, which was a drug called Coumadin, which is actually rat poison. Uh, that's what it's, it was. It's rat poison. Yes, that was what it was originally found and used for. And then at some point realized that it could be used as a blood thinner. I see. Yeah, so nobody likes this drug. Uh, very hard to dose. Everyone has a different dosage. You have to kind of titrate it and check wow. your blood really regularly. It's a terrible drug. I think it's every cardiologist's least favorite drug. In the last few years, four different pharmaceutical companies have all created what are called novel anticoagulants, so second-generation blood thinners. And they're, they, they're not rat poisons? Exactly. They are are they gerbil poisons? poisons? <laughs> <laughs> are they anything on the spectrum of rodent poison? Uh, I, I'm pretty confident in saying no. Okay. <laughs> no, but they're, they're much better drugs. They're much easier to dose. They you know, are more effective. They're, they're much better drugs. But you know, they're also more expensive because they're on patent. And so there's kind of an important question as well is among all people who have atrial fibrillation who should go on a blood thinner, right. these different blood thinners work on somewhat different mechanisms. Right. Um, you know, who benefits most from which type of drug is also a very important question as and, well. And maybe we don't want to wait around for the other hand to start doing counting for another algorithm, a new exactly. CHADS, to help us figure out what drug they get. But exactly. perhaps we could kind of tackle this all in a holistic way. Is that, is that kind of the exactly. idea? Got exactly. It. So if you imagine in some ways it touches upon three very big fields in the world. Um, so one is consumer technology, you know, and, and all of these groups now have an eye on being able to impact medicine, which is great. You know, there's the world of payers, insurance companies and, you know, Medicare and things like that, who want to make sure that the right people get a drug and not the wrong people. Right. So they're very incentivized to kind of improving our decision support tools. So instead of using five fingers, using something better. So then you have these pharmaceutical companies who, you know, have drugs that are still on patent. So there's this kind of tremendous alignment of interests around three different groups all trying to go after this disease and together can be very transformative um, in terms of actually kind of saving lives and doing good things for the world. That seems incredibly interesting and I'm really excited to see how this pans out. I think that wraps it up for this episode of Theory and Practice. I'm Alex Wolchko. And I'm Anthony Philippakis. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice at gv.com.